Before I start this episode and run any ads, I would like to say that I stand with Ukraine and I am praying for all Ukrainians. What is happening to your beautiful country is unfair and barbaric. I am praying and hoping all of this is over soon and that your beautiful country remains yours. I am adding a link in my episode show notes to Save the Children, a nonprofit that is raising funds to help the 7.5 million Ukrainian children who are in danger right now. Additionally, I am adding a link to the UN Refugee Agency where they are collecting donations for displaced Ukrainian refugees. I ask that all of my listeners consider donating to either of these or any of the other causes that are helping Ukrainians right now as their worlds have been turned upside down. I will be donating any proceeds I get from my affiliates from this podcast episode to these causes as well. Do you love unraveling a good old-fashioned whodunit? Oh honey, me too. I'm Alicia, armchair detective and host of Dead On, a true crime podcast. Join me every Friday. We'll dive into a case that scratches your itch for true crime, dark history, and mystery. Streaming now, everywhere you love to listen. chronic pain, muscle soreness, migraines, or menstrual cramps, I am so excited to share one of my favorite products with you. Jovi is a medicine-free way to erase discomfort by using nanocapacitors to change the way your nervous system processes pain. To put it simply, it absorbs pain and tells your brain to no longer feel the pain in the specific area where you're holding the patch. Now, I know this sounds too good to be true and like some type of sci-fi fantasy gadget. So Jovi offers a no questions asked 120-day money-back guarantee. I personally love Jovi and can feel it instantly working whenever I put it on any particular area where I'm feeling pain. So get rid of any pain today and invest in a Jovi patch that will last you through years of use. You can save 10% by using the code DOEIDENTIFY or by using the link in this episode's show notes. Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. This podcast does not include graphic or explicit content. However, this podcast is based on the stories of people that are deceased and oftentimes murdered. So if the topic of death is bothersome to you or anyone around you, please use your best judgment when listening and also listen to the appropriate trigger warnings that I may give in any particular episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Doe Identify podcast. If you are new here, my name is Haley and this week I would like to provide an additional trigger warning for this episode because I am covering a child in my first case and a pregnant woman in my second case. I will be highly sensitive as always, but more so in the child's case because it's probably the most disturbing Jane Doe case I've ever covered or even heard of. So with that being said, I would not suggest listening to this episode around your kids as I know many of you do with my podcast. 
Okay, this first case was suggested by my dear listener, Jalen, and this case is super close to her heart, and I can see why I was crying while researching, and I'm going to try not to cry. Through this episode, I'm already getting teary-eyed thinking about having to talk about this little girl's death. But without a further ado, let's get into the St. Louis Jane Doe, also known as the Little Jane Doe story. On February 28, 1983, two men were searching for a pipe in an apartment building that was mostly abandoned at 5635 Clemens Avenue in St. Louis to help fix their van. They entered the furnace room in the basement of this building and continued their search. With it being in the basement, it was extremely dark and they couldn't see anything. So one of the men used their cigarette lighter to look around and actually see stuff. And the light ended up exposing the body of an African-American girl between the ages of 8 and 11. Investigators originally thought she was older than this because she was very tall at 5'5 to 5'6. If you're not in the U.S., that is 65 to 66 inches. She was only 70 to 80 pounds. Some reports say she had spina bifida occulta on her sacrum, which is a condition where a child's spine is not fully developed. The sacrum is a bone in the pelvis region and creates the base of the pelvis connected to the spine. In my research, I found this bone is developed in the months just before birth, so perhaps this is a sign that she was born early. This is just my finding. This is not what investigators have said or news articles or anything like that. It's just what I thought. And they do say that she may not have shown any signs of this condition. But the lead investigator recently said in a documentary that I will talk about a little bit later that she did not have spina bifida and that it wasn't true. So I'm not sure why it's in literally every news article, including government sources. Just keep that in mind that she may not have had spina bifida and it could have not been noticeable anyways. Other than that, she had no other scars, irregularities, deformities, or other specific features that would give clues to her identity. There were no signs of abuse to this young girl and she was properly nourished, but her stomach was empty at the time of her death. She also had two coats of nail polish on. We know one was red and the other was either red or purple. The sources I used to research this case don't agree on the second shade, but it was likely a magenta color. But the photos of her body did look like red nail polish, but let's just say she had two shades of red nail polish on. That's probably the most accurate description. She was found in a tagless yellow v-neck sweater and nothing else. The sweater is what she was wearing at the time of her murder as it was very bloody. And some testing on her body showed that she had been sitting there in the basement for about five days to a week before they found her. So this is where the story gets extremely disturbing. So this young girl was missing her head and her head has never been discovered. And so if you have seen my episode art, that is why the image of her sweater is being used rather than an image of her face. 
This is also why identifying her has been so difficult. She was killed and then brought to the building after she was deceased and investigators recall seeing drag marks of blood from when someone brought her into the building. He said it was on the stone walls where the person had likely bumped her body into it. Her hands were tied behind her back with red and white nylon rope, which there are also images of. Investigators do have her DNA, fingerprints, and footprints, thankfully. Her decapitation was thought to have been the cause of her death, but it's now believed that she was either suffocated or strangled beforehand. This was like a huge relief for me to read. It obviously being killed is not good in any way, shape, or form, but I do think that this new manner of death is a lot less traumatic to experience. She was also unfortunately assaulted with semen and a white pubic hair on her groin area. In the documentary, the investigator did not say if they were able to DNA test this, so I'm unfortunately not sure what happened to this, Investigators have already looked through all of the missing African-American girls from that time and they have had no luck. They have a cold case unit and they have dedicated an entire room to her case and I love seeing the police department take such an initiative on her case. With that being said, they also looked through all of the school systems in the area and had no luck in finding a missing girl. The documentary mentioned that at the time, St. Louis had computerized systems, so it made it a lot easier to go through and search through all of the young girls and their absences, but unfortunately that did not give them any leads as to who this girl could have been. Lieutenant Scott Albachon is quoted as saying an 8, 9, 10, or 11-year-old girl doesn't go missing without people taking notice. We are now 37 years later, and I think if anyone was reluctant before to talk, now is the time to come forward. If anyone knows a little girl, maybe a family member, who they suddenly lost track of and disappeared, we want to know. We are interested in anything. End quote. This girl's case has suffered from many accidents. For one, investigators tried to get the help of a psychic and she requested they mail the sweater to her. They did, the psychic says that she got it and then she sent it back and it never showed back up at the police department. So it must have been lost in the mail. Her sweater is still missing to this very day, which is so unfortunate because it would just be amazing to have another look at it under the lens of DNA. And then her body also went missing. Her body was misplaced by the graveyard she was buried at. Some articles say it was likely due to grave diggers defacing it or they just never labeled her tombstone. There's a lot of conflicting information in this case, as you can probably tell, but thankfully they were able to find it after several months of searching because they found a photo of where the casket was buried and it took a lot of testing of this photo to actually find her body. Once they found it, they exhumed her body and after this, they performed isotope tests on her bones. These results found that she was not originally from the local St. Louis area and possibly spent most of her childhood in the following states. 
Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, and West Virginia. Some additional tests showed that the victim may have also been from the South, including both Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, and Tennessee. These differing regions is quite confusing, but I assume they found different isotopes from these regions and that she could have lived in both at different points of her life. So let's talk about this brand new documentary. I actually watched it just before recording this and I thought it was a great one. Just a warning to headphone users, there's a lot of jump scares in it, which I was kind of shocked by, but it's a really great documentary. It's very informative and I have loved watching how the community has surrounded themselves over this little girl and I totally understand it. In fact, there's a lot of information that is conflicting with these news sources and it's coming directly from the police department. So I want to believe the head investigators that have been on this case for decades rather than journalists who may be just rewording what other journalists say, if that makes sense. So I definitely recommend you watch this. I did go through and kind of try to fact check everything based on what the documentary said. So I want to make sure all of my information in here is accurate. The documentary is called Precious Hope, St. Louis's Baby Jane Doe, and you can watch it on YouTube or the 314 Bird Studios website, which I will link in my show notes. If you look up the documentary's title, you will easily be able to find it on the internet. With all that being said, I got a ton of my information from this documentary, and I definitely recommend watching it. But that's really all that we have on this little girl. Her case is so sad and really disturbing. There have been some different suspects on this case. A lot of people, and including myself, believe that Vernon Brown was the murderer of the little Jane Doe. This is because he had also decapitated a nine-year-old girl in the St. Louis area before, and investigators have tried to get him to confess. He never did, and he was executed in 2005 by lethal injection. He had confessed to decapitating this nine-year-old girl and then leaving her in two different trash bags in a dumpster behind an alley, which is like the worst thing you can do to a, another human being, let alone a nine-year-old girl. And he also confessed to, I'm sorry, y'all, I am just so emotional because of how these people have passed away. He also confessed to murdering a 19-year-old girl by pretending to be a maintenance man and went to her apartment complex and strangled her with an electrical cord. So his MO is spot on with these two cases in the little Jane Doe case. But anyways, he really is the only suspect that people consider. And it's unfortunate that we weren't able to get any answers out of him. But just to me, the likelihood of another human being being able to decapitate little girls, specifically African-American girls, and also strangling African-American girls 
in St. Louis. I feel like it's really hard to come across other people who can do that. So to me, I feel like it was him, but you never know. If you have a tip on who the little Jane Doe could be, please call the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department at 314-444-5371. Chewy is once again one of my partnerships for this podcast. Chewy is one of the longest partnerships I have on this podcast, and it's for a great reason. We started using Chewy when we got our first dog, Ranger, in college, which was like four years ago, because it helped us save so much money through their auto ship program. Now that we have two dogs, we go through way more food now, and the auto ship program takes remembering to buy them their food every month off my plate completely. All I did was set up the frequency I want their food to be delivered, and it comes every single month. If you would like to try out the AutoShip program, you can save 30% on your first order using my link in the show notes. If you have a fur baby, I know you will love Chewy as much as I do. love having long, luscious eyelashes but hate the time it takes to put falsies on every morning? What about the cost of eyelash extensions and the long appointments to get them refilled? If you get just as frustrated as I do, Flutter Habit is the perfect solution for you. Flutter Habit offers DIY eyelash extensions at home that are a fraction of the price of regular extensions. Not to mention, they last for five days, which is far longer than regular glue-on eyelashes. If you're ready to up your eyelash game from the comfort of your own home, use the link in my show notes to get 10% off your first order. Thank you so much to Flutter Habit for working with me on this podcast episode. On March 18, 1967, the body of a young woman was found off the shoulder of Porter Road in the town of Bear, Delaware. Porter Road is just a few miles away from Interstate 95, which is an interstate that connects a lot of the New England states. The young woman was found partially inside of a blue laundry bag from American Laundry Dry Cleaning with the ticket number EX45277. American Laundry Dry Cleaning used to be on 326 Perry Street in Trenton, New Jersey. Trenton is on the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania, 30 miles northeast of Philadelphia. Interstate 95 connects New Jersey and Delaware, so it's likely whoever placed her body there took this highway. Investigators asked the owners of the dry cleaners about the young woman, and they remember her either as a customer or as a local to the area. But the canvas laundry bag she was found in was one all of their customers used for transporting their clothes to the laundromat, so it's safe to say she was likely a customer there. Other than the laundry bag, she was wearing blue bikini-style panties with no label or tag. She also had a red ribbon in her hair, and she had only been dead for a few hours before she was found. 
The medical examiner determined that she was between 16 and 25 years old and was 5'2 or 62 inches. She was also 110 pounds at the time of her death and investigators made a note that she was very petite in stature. She had dark brown hair and brown eyes. Both of her ears were pierced, but it looked like she hadn't worn earrings in a long time. She was white and her ethnicity is Greek, Italian, or Jewish after recent ancestry testing. She had a vaccination scar on her left thigh, so we know she had access to some type of healthcare, but she had no birthmarks or surgical scars. Her blood type was O, and she was likely the bra size 34 double D. She had great teeth with several restorations, and it looks like she had gone to the dentist about six months to a year before her death. The saddest thing about these Jane Doe cases to me is when they are pregnant when they died, because then it becomes two does in the case and just being pregnant and being in that situation must be terrifying. And unfortunately, in this case, our Jane Doe was about three months pregnant. This case was reopened in late 2011 by a detective named Hal Brown, who is the deputy director of Forensic Sciences Laboratory at Delaware's State Medical Examiner's Office. That's the longest title in history of titles, Hal. I'm sorry you have to say that to everyone. He and his team are actively looking for information in the Trenton, New Jersey area. In particular, they are focusing on the senior population because this Jane Doe would have been between 71 and 80 years old today. Brown found a vial of the woman's blood in storage after he reopened the case. He had the blood tested for DNA. We love a proactive investigator. And the woman did have some matches. Her matches were on her mom's side and were all from Virginia and North Carolina. Her matches were all on her mom's side and were from Virginia and North Carolina. However, her matches did not know her name or her identity which is just so unfortunate in these cases because we always hope that their DNA matches will know exactly who they are, but when they don't, it's just really heartbreaking. Another development in this case, which can potentially be triggering to listeners, just to warn you, they found a soap-like substance in her vaginal cavity. I'm bringing this up because investigators used to believe that she had died from a botched abortion. According to NJ.com, back before Roe v. Wade, women would illegally get harmful chemicals placed in their vaginas in order to kill the fetus and would cause the woman to miscarry, which sounds so incredibly dangerous and really terrifying. Although this likely happened, the chemicals are not what killed her. Instead, she died of an infection, and we aren't sure what was infected in her body. We just know that she had sepsis and did not receive the medical care that she needed. Hal Brown really wants to emphasize that this could have been completely unrelated to her abortion, or it could have been directly related, but we don't know. We do know that if she did attempt to get an abortion, it was unsuccessful because the baby was three months along at the time of its mom's death. 
Whoever she was with did not get her the medical care that she needed, and then she died. We're not sure if she even knew that she had sepsis. She could have just not been feeling well and then died because of it. And whoever she was with, they unfortunately did not go to the hospital and try to see if they can save her life. They just dumped her body on the side of the road in Delaware. With a lot of cases with pregnant Jane Doe's, it's always suspected that whoever dumped their bodies and murdered them were the father of the child. And in this case, I think it could be likely a lot of women back in the 60s and 70s were extremely embarrassed of getting pregnant out of wedlock. And that's why a lot of them did get abortions. And if the man did not want her to have the child, we don't know if that's why he just dumped her body and didn't try to save her. We're not sure. I'm not trying to point fingers or anything. It could have just been a freak accident. We really have no idea. The National Center of Missing and Exploited Children and Carl Koppelman have created renderings of this young woman. I am using Carl's image since he is a friend of the podcast and because I find he always makes the most accurate renderings. Carl is so talented and please listen to my interview with him probably a dozen episodes back or so. But with that being said, please do look at Nick Mick's image as well. They always do a great job and I choose them over any other renderings unless it's against Carl Koppelman. I'm sorry, I'm so biased. Anyone with information on this case can contact Hal Brown directly at 302-577-3420, extension 206. They said that you can also contact the Delaware Medical Examiner and Forensic Science Laboratory on Facebook. I appreciate you all listening to this week's podcast episode. I know that these cases were pretty brutal to get through, especially the little Jane Doe. I just feel absolutely sick for her. And believe it or not, I did censor quite a lot of the information about her and what had happened to her, the most important details that could be related to her identity were of course shared. But as always, I try to have as much respect for the victims as possible in these cases and especially ones of children. So I am going to log off now before this turns into me crying and ranting. But I really appreciate all of you for listening to this podcast and taking time out of your day to listen to all of these victims' stories. Thank you all so much, and please remember to give some of my fellow Podmoth podcasts a listen. You will really love their podcasts if you like mine, because we are all kind of a similar vibe. Thank you all so much.